Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Maybe you remember the story of a man sitting at a stoplight one morning and the lady in front of him was going through papers on the seat of her car and when the light changed, she ignored the fact that it was green, that it had turned green and that is an annoying feeling when someone does that. Well, she sat there until the light turned red again and that, that aggravated this man and so he started screaming and beating on his steering wheel and just having a fit about this. But his tirade was interrupted by a policeman with a gun drawn and a tap on his window. And the officer ordered him to the back seat of his police car. And this man started protesting about this. He started shouting at the officer. He said, you can't arrest me for yelling at people in my own car. Well, after being held for some time, the officer finally told him that he was free to go. But the man had to get in one last word because that's what guys do sometimes. We have to get in one last word. And so he told the officer, he said, I knew you couldn't arrest me for what I was yelling in my own car. Then the officer corrected him and said, I didn't pull you over for shouting in your car. I was directly behind you at the light. I saw you screaming and beating on your steering wheel. And I said to myself, what a jerk. But there's nothing I can do for him throwing a fit in his own car. But then I noticed that church bumper sticker and the bright yellow Choose Life license plate cover and the Jesus is coming soon bumper sticker. And I thought, surely, surely you must have stolen that car. (laughs) Matching our identity in Jesus Christ, living out who God has made us to be as believers in Christ, living by grace, living by the Spirit. This is where the Apostle Paul has left us in Galatians 5. I invite you to turn there with me. Paul's last words that we saw in Galatians 5 last week were in verse 25, where he said this. He said, if we live in the Spirit, let us also what? Walk in the Spirit. But now we see that Paul adds something else to it in verse 26. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, I want you to think carefully about this verse. Just focus on it for a second. It teaches us that how we treat other people is determined by what we think about ourselves. Conceited here means empty glory. Someone who is out for glory apart from God. To boast where there's nothing to boast about. Don't divorce verse 26 from verse 25, meaning that the path to all that Paul is calling us to live out, all that Paul is about to teach comes from walking in the spirit, living by his power. Now, Paul mentions verse 26 in his fight against these legalists. Why would he do that? Because legalists are always about rules, their rules, not just any rules, their rules, the rules that they come up with, that they think everybody else needs to follow. 
do this, don't do this. And when they follow their own rules, they get all puffed up and prideful. And this arrogance, it's easy to spot, and it provokes others, Paul says. It drives them away. A legalist tries to make himself look better by making others look bad. Pride doesn't come from God. We know that. It comes from within. It comes from within our sin nature. It provokes others. It leads us to envy. You see, here's what happens. When we do anything by our own strength, we accomplish anything. We look around to see that, hey, look what I did. I'm better than someone else. And then we judge other people. Or we look around to see that, hey, some are still better than us, and we start to envy them. We start to look up to them. Neither option is good. So don't look to yourself, Paul is saying. Look to the Spirit of God living in you. Live by His power. Walk with Christ. But you see, this message does stand in total opposition to everything that we hear today, doesn't it? Because most people are focused on themselves. It's all about me is the mindset. It starts when we're children. We're taught as little children that we're special. We're taught that I am more important than you. My needs must be met. I shouldn't have to do anything I really don't want to do in life. It's my life and I'm owed the right to be happy. We've become an entitled society. It is the belief that I am exempt from responsibility and I am owed special treatment. You see, entitled people blame their parents. Entitled people blame their spouse, their co-workers, or their boss. Entitled people drive me nuts, to be quite honest. Entitled people are hard to be around because they don't really care about others. Everything is about me, me, me. It's the mindset that says it's all about me. It's the mindset that says I'm a little bit better than the rest. But Christ says something else, doesn't he? He says it's not about you. It's not about you. It's about him. Entitlement is so easy to spot. It's why we see parents with self-centered children. People who refuse today to grow up and accept any responsibility. Leaders who expect special treatment because of their position, not their character. Marriages are torn apart because each person wants to be catered to without even thinking of the other person. And churches where people put themselves before the mission of God. People coming to church thinking that their needs and wants should be met, not looking for God's work that he's looking to do in the body of Christ. And Paul says the solution is simple. Walk in the Spirit. Walk with God. Live for God. Because when you walk with God, you find out that God is not looking for you to judge everyone else in this room. He's looking for you to come and build them up in Christ. It is Philippians 2, 3 that says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Now, if you look around today, what do you see? You see that people are starving for love. People are longing for joy and peace. And you can bring that to the table simply by walking with God. Humility understands that each of us has been shown grace. Verse 1 in chapter 6. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. 
I like the story of the mom who decided to play a joke on her daughter as she was sitting in church just before the service started. She called her daughter, and when she heard someone pick up right on cue with a very deep voice, she said, this is God speaking, why aren't you in church? Only to find out she had dialed the wrong number. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question this morning. Let's say it's Friday night, and you were arrested because you were pulled over for drunk driving. If you don't drink, pick your own sin. And then on Saturday morning, the headlines of the Matsu Frontiersman had your picture and your arrest report on it. Would you come to church on Sunday morning? Now, most people would say no. Most people would absolutely say no because they would be too embarrassed to come to church. But that tells me we actually have a problem because the church is supposed to be a place where we look to restore one another. You see, it's sort of like a man who's hit by a car and he gets blood all over the place, makes a big mess because his bones are broken and he's bleeding all over the place. But when they try to take him to the hospital, he says, wait, 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 I'm a mess. Let me go home. Let me get cleaned up. Let me heal. And then I'm going to go to the hospital. We've let this mindset take over the church today. Because of pride, too many churches have become places of judgment and condemnation instead of place of healing. I'll tell you what's even worse is when people are broken, when people come to church, when people are hurting and others put on a fake smile and ignore it, pretending that everything is all right. See, Paul says in verse 1, he tells us to restore the sinner. Don't ignore their sin. That's not doing anybody any good. Because we all still battle this sin nature. People are going to fall. People are going to fail. People are going to fail to walk with the Spirit of God. But a legalist comes along and judges. A legalist looks the other way or gives a fake smile and then goes to their chair. But Paul is calling for us to care enough to help mend a broken life or help set a person straight before they completely destroy themselves. You see, the thought here, when it says if a man is overtaken in any trespass, it's interesting wording. The thought is of a believer in Christ kind of running, if you will, running from sin, but they're overtaken. That's my running motion, people. That's my running motion right there. He's running from sin. Now, I don't do it very much, so that's all you're going to get. But he's running from sin. They're overtaken. Not premeditated sin. This is very specific in the Greek text. It's not premeditated sin, and this is not habitual repeated sin over and over and over again. It's on this occasion, on this single occasion, sin got the better of them. Help to restore this person. Help them to get up on their feet. Paul uses this illustration because nothing reveals the wickedness of legalistic men better than the way legalists treat those who have fallen into sin. Paul is contrasting what a legalist would do compared to what a spiritual man would do. You see, when someone stumbles into sin, the legalist comes along and he condemns and he judges. The spirit-led believer approaches with humility and love. Now, the word for restore, it was used by doctors in that day to describe setting a broken bone, making it straight again, restore it to the condition that it was before. 
The word was also used by fishermen to describe the mending of nets. And we see this actually in Matthew 4 and Mark chapter 1. We see fishermen on the shore of the Sea of Galilee mending their nets. It's the same word that Paul uses here in Galatians 6. You see, in Matthew and in Mark, their nets had been torn. They'd become useless. So they took the time to sit down and mend their nets back together again. They were restoring them, making them useful again, which exactly is exactly what a Christian who falls into sin needs. You see, sin has ripped away at their life already. Sin has made them useless. They don't need someone to tear at them anymore. They need someone to come along and mend them. They need someone to help make them useful again for the work of God. God calls us to restore the sinner, not blame them. Not gossip about the person. Don't talk about them behind their back. Instead, talk to them. Restore the sinner, God says. This means we don't just simply ignore the sin, that we don't pretend that nothing is wrong in their life because that just doesn't help anyone. If you ignore a broken bone, it's only going to make it worse, not better. And if we ignore the problem when someone is broken, it makes it worse, not better. The love of Christ living in us means we care enough about people that when we see them struggle with sin, we go to them. Not someone else. We go to them privately. Jesus himself said in Matthew 18, he says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you've gained your brother. I wonder what the church would look like if we followed Matthew 18 today. This is actually the most loving thing that you could do. Imagine picking up your car from the shop after just a normal tune-up, and the mechanic tells you that your car is in great shape. Clearly, you must have an automotive genius taking care of your car. I mean, whoever's taking care of your car is one sharp dude. But later that day, your brakes don't work, and you find out that you were just out of brake fluid, but you could have died. So you go back. You go back to the shop, and you say, hey, why didn't you tell me I was out of brake fluid? And the mechanic looks at you and says, I didn't want you to feel bad. Plus, to be honest, I was afraid you'd get upset with me. I want this to be a safe place where we all feel loved and accepted. You'd be mad. You'd be upset at this point. And at some point, you'd tell him, when it comes to my car, what? I want the truth. Or imagine going to a doctor's office for a checkup, and the doctor says to you, man, you are a physical specimen. You have the body of an athlete. But later that day, you're climbing a flight of stairs and your heart gives out because you find out later your arteries are so clogged you're one jelly donut away from the Grim Reaper. And if you went back to the doctor and you asked him, hey, why didn't you tell me I was about to die? The doctor says, well, I knew your body is in worse shape than the Pillsbury Doughboy, but if I tell people stuff like that, they get offended. It's bad for business. They don't come back. I want this to be a safe place where you feel loved and accepted. You'd be mad, wouldn't you? You'd be furious because when it comes to your health and your body, you want the truth. But somehow we accept this garbage in the church. 
Somehow we have let this mindset take over the church, that we're a business, that it's all about numbers, that we have to keep people in the local body no matter what, but the church is supposed to be about one thing, the truth. And when you're caught up in sin, the most important thing you need is the truth. So if we want to become a place of healing for broken people, we start here. We start with the truth of God's word. God says to restore the sinner, not ignore the sin. But notice something else in verse 1. Paul says, you who are spiritual, restore the man overtaken in sin. This is coming after everything we just looked at in Galatians chapter 5 about walking in the Spirit. Meaning this, the job of restoration is not a job for those who have not learned to walk with Jesus Christ themselves. Do you hear that? If someone hasn't learned to walk with Christ, they shouldn't be trying to show someone else how to. It's for people who have learned to depend on God and God alone. This is a work of God that he does through his people. Meaning if you've not learned to live out the truth of Galatians 5, you should not be in the business of trying to teach others. Spiritual means in the context, men and women, depending on the spirit of God. This is not a job for people who have not learned to walk with God. Many of you know that I struggle with a rare kind of tumor. And I don't just go to anyone for advice. I don't just pick somebody out of, the, out of the phone book or just drive up to any old business in town. I go to a specialist because he has the knowledge and the skill set to help. And it's the same thing when Christians are caught in sin. None of us on our own, no one here on our own can care for the souls of people, but God can. God living through us. And those who have learned to let him live through us need to let him care for the broken people in the church by using us. God can heal the pain. Absolutely, we can't. God can help men overcome sin. So depend on him. Trust the spirit of God to work through us. And then look at the next part where he says, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. You see, we mend broken lives gently with a tender touch as friends, not as enemies. Paul uses this same word for gentleness over in 1 Corinthians 4, where he says to the Christians in Corinth wrestling with their own sin, he says, shall I come to you with a rod or in love in a spirit of gentleness? You see the same idea in Galatians. It is that we don't come in anger, but when we do, when we come with anger or when we come trying to judge our brothers and sisters in Christ, trying to judge them and whip them into shape, it's only just going to chase them away. Legalism does that. James 1.20 says, For the wrath of man does not produce, what? The righteousness of God. And Proverbs 15.1 says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Just a few years ago, CBS News ran a story about L.A. Sheriff's Deputy Elton Simmons because this guy, over 20 years of doing traffic stops, this is the guy you want to have pull you over, over 20 years of doing traffic stops, writing over 25,000 citations and drivers with tickets, he never received one single complaint. It's the nature of the business. If you're a cop, you're going to get complaints. It's kind of like being a pastor. You're going to get complaints. It really is. Cops receive complaints all the time. That's their job. No one ever thinks that they're guilty. No one ever thinks they deserve a ticket. Nothing's your fault. You were just late for work or whatever. 
In LA, they have a weird, well, they have a lot of weird things. It's California, let's be honest. But they have a weird thing that they do in LA. Each ticket, each complaint gets a document on the file, on their personnel file. But Elton, over the course of his entire career of writing out these tickets, has never had a single complaint against him. And when his supervisor started looking through his file, he was stunned by this because something like that just does not happen. You complain about cops, that's what you do. Well, it's so amazing that this CBS news crew was assigned to find out why. They followed Elton around for a little bit and they tried to figure out why this was. And first they noticed his tone. They said it was a pitch perfect mix of authority and diplomacy without a trace of arrogance, no arrogance and no self-righteousness. Now he still gives out plenty of tickets, he does. They don't, don't come with the standard guilt trip. And here's how Elton describes his approach. He says, I'm here with you. One thing I hate is when people look down on you. I can't stand it, so I'm not gonna do it to you. I'm not gonna look down on you. And one driver said it was his smile. How could you be mad at the guy? And I think there's a lesson there for us, and I hope you see it. When we have to do the hard work of restoring a sinner, gentleness goes a lot further, doesn't it, than a self-righteous attitude. You see, the legalist is always tougher and harder on others than he is on himself. The legalist does not show mercy, but the spirit-led Christian seeks to grow in Christ so that he can actually help others. It means listening. It means praying. It means sharing from the scripture, helping the believer along in their faith. Paul says, consider yourself lest you also be tempted. We mend broken lives with an understanding of our own imperfect record with sin, careful that we don't give in ourselves to temptation. And then verse 2, it teaches, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, the burden that Paul has in mind is the burden of temptation to sin, giving in to the sin nature. I want you to kind of think of the mental picture here. If you see someone who has a big, heavy burden on their back, they're struggling to go through life, and you come along and you put your shoulder alongside theirs, and instead of them trying to carry that burden themselves, it's the two of you walking along together. Now, verse 5 is going to put some limits on this in a second. Verse 5 is going to teach us in a minute that we don't have to take over the whole load for the other person. We don't have to carry what the other person should be able to carry. But the burden, the things that are above and beyond what a normal person should carry, those are the times when Christians are called to help. And when you live this out, Paul says it's the law of Christ, the law of love, Christ's love living through us, meaning we mend broken lives with the compassion and love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. When he saw sin in our lives, Jesus loved us from an old rugged cross. Jesus didn't come to condemn us. He came to save us from our sins by taking them away through his death, burial, and resurrection. And this is the type of love that he wants to have through us for one another. Not condemnation, not shame, but to live with compassion towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. To help one another with the burdens that we cannot carry on our own. 
See, the legalist comes and lives in pride, adding on more rules, more of a burden that weigh down people even more in their life. And Jesus, he himself said something interesting about these people. He said, for they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves, notice, will not move them with one of their fingers. Legalists only pile on. They only add more burdens, but love helps to lift those burdens. And Paul makes a bold statement here. He says, if you think you're too important to help someone struggling, Paul's saying this, you're fooling yourself. You're fooling yourself. You see, too often people don't want to help because they have a love for self, not for Christ and not for his people. We think we're too important to get involved in the life of another Christian. It's the spirit of the Pharisee that says, I'm better. I'm better. I'm more holier than you. But Jesus didn't have that attitude, did he? And thank God that he didn't, or we wouldn't be sitting here today. None of us are above falling into sin. Pride goes before the fall every single time. Or as Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Verse 3 in Galatians. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Pride often gets in the way of Christians helping others. Pride blinds us to our own sin. It makes it so that we don't even see our own sin. But that is why the work of restoration is not for the proud person. It's not for those who think they are better than someone that has fallen into sin. And it's not for those who don't realize their need to depend on Christ. Instead, God says, this in our last two verses. He says, but let each one examine his own work and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another for each one shall bear his own load. Now, if you're just reading this in English, it looks like we have a contradiction in the text because in verse two, we're told to carry each other's burdens. And in verse five, we're told to carry our own load. And the answer is we're supposed to do both. We're supposed to do both. In the Greek, Paul used two different words. The first word for burdens in verse 2 means something that is heavy, something that is like a crushing, crushing load, more than what a man could carry without help. We would apply this to something like grieving the loss of a loved one or the loss of a job or helping another believer overcome the temptation to sin, a heavy, heavy burden in life. This is something that we can and we should help the other Christian bear just by letting God live through us, just by letting God minister through us. But the second word that Paul uses here in verse 5 for burdens or load means to carry a commercial load on a ship, also used to describe a pregnant woman carrying a child. It describes a situation where the burden cannot be shared, like a pregnant woman must carry her child on her own, or a soldier marching along must carry his own backpack. It describes something that is light enough to be carried. It is the difference between a backpack and a boulder, something that is too heavy and impossible to carry alone. Verse 2, we help carry those burdens. But verse 5, this describes that there are certain Christian responsibilities that every believer in Christ, they should be able to bear it and they should not have to share it with others. In other words, what this describes in verse 4 and verse 5 is that we each will be personally accountable to God on the day of judgment. 
Every single one of us. It's saying that, hey, my attitudes and my dealing with sin and my spiritual growth, the very personal things that only I can deal with, someone else cannot pray to God for me. Someone else cannot read the Bible for me. Someone else cannot love my spouse for me or raise my family. And someone else cannot love the brethren for me. Paul is saying, examine your work, not for salvation. That comes from the promise of God. Paul is talking again about the judgment seat of Christ for believers, the place of rewards and loss of rewards for believers. And he's telling us to take a step back, take a look at what we're doing, look at our responsibility to walk with God, to live for Christ, to serve Christ because of his love pouring through us. Don't look for the praise that comes from others. The only confidence we can have before God and his call on our life is when we walk by faith. And then and only then can we rejoice in what we've done in the Lord, because then we rejoice in what God has done through us. Meaning this, if you're going to boast, Christian, boast in what God has done in your life. If you're going to boast, boast in what God has done. Examine your walk in light of the coming judgment seat of Christ. Carry your own load in light of the coming day when we all stand before Christ. Because each person on that day is going to give an account for how they walked with Christ, for how they served Christ. And Paul puts this here in verse 4, because people don't like to compare how they're doing with the Bible. They like to compare how they're doing with the next guy sitting next to them. It's like the little boy who announced one day that he was 10 feet tall. He had measured himself and he was 10 feet tall. Why? Because he made his own ruler and had measured himself. Well, Jesus is not going to judge Christians on how we compare with other people in this room or with the standards that we come up with on our own. You're going to answer to Christ. I'm going to answer to Christ based on what we have done with our opportunities and our gifts given to us to serve him. But we have this tendency as Christians to take on everyone's cares and concerns on their shoulders. And sometimes Christians do this out of compassion. Sometimes it's because Christians want to feel needed. But the message is, don't carry what is not yours. You were never designed as a Christian to carry the world on your shoulders. And others, others struggle in the opposite direction. Maybe you're burned out and maybe you don't care. Maybe you just don't care about the problems that people have. Or maybe you've been burned in a church. Oh, I have many times. And maybe you never want to get involved again. Maybe you never want to serve again. I'm sorry, but there is a balance in Scripture. We're not to do for others what God wants them to do for themselves, but the Spirit-lived life does not let other Christians try to lift on their own a weight that is too heavy to carry. Help one another with the big burdens of life, but don't step in when Christians have a responsibility to carry it themselves. There are times when you actually have to pull back until the person begins to take responsibility. Paul says in verse 4, examine your work. Don't compare yourself with others. Walk in humility because we don't need a proud man trying to fix a broken man. He'll do more damage than good. Only those who have learned to depend on the grace of God are actually ready to step in and help others depend on that same grace. Sometimes when we step into the lives of other Christians, it's painful. It's painful to help them carry their crushing burden. I'm thinking this morning of a young man named David. He was a student at the University of Redlands in South California, and he was the captain of a basketball team 
David was a good student, a young man that was just one of those guys that was a pleasure to be around. And David started developing a sickness. It was ulcerated colitis. And he went into the hospital and then into intensive care for six weeks. And during the six weeks that he was there, listen to this, he received 72 blood transfusions. His pastor, Bruce, was called to the hospital six different times because David was not expected to make it through the day. Six times he did make it, but the seventh time Bruce was called, he knew right away that this, this would be the time. And for the first time, David was starting to show considerable fear. Not fear about his own salvation. His personal relationship with the Lord had been sealed many, many years before. It was a fear about dying. Because if there's any degree of honesty, if there's any degree of honesty about this, you must recognize and I must recognize that there's some question about that. There's some anxiety in all of our lives about this coming transition that we're all going to have to go through. And David was trying to talk about, as a believer, what is it like to die? What is that like? And when he questioned his father, he didn't get any answers. His dad responded by saying, now look, we're not going to talk about that. You've made it through every time. This is a team effort. We're all here, the doctors, the nurses, your mom and I. Bruce is here. We're going to make it. And I'm not going to judge. Maybe that's all a father can say at that point in time. So David tried to talk to his mother about it. And his mother would just bend down and kiss him and put another cold cloth on his hot forehead. Bruce had some different approaches. He moved beside the bed, sat down, and took David's hand. And it was very white and thin now, but still very strong. And his hand had those blue and brown spots that, that come from all the needles in the tubes. And they talked about what it must be like to die. They talked about separation from loved ones and the reunion with loved ones that have gone on before. They talked about what it must be like to meet the Lord Jesus Christ face to face, to stand before him. They talked about what it must be like to move out of time itself and into eternity. And as they would talk and share these things and bring scripture to them, David would drift off to sleep. And then he would awaken up again and the conversation would continue and then to sleep and awake again, and then it would continue. But never once, never once, even when he was asleep, would he relax his grip on Bruce. And one of those times when he was asleep, Jesus took young David home. But Bruce ended with these words, and he says, I think I learned that night what it means in Scripture when it says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know what comfort means in Scripture? It means to stand with. Because often one of the most loving things that we can do when a friend is in pain, when a brother or sister in Christ is in pain, is to stand with them and to share that pain. To be there even when we have nothing to offer except for our presence. And even when being there is painful to ourselves, Christ calls us to this if we're going to live out his love. Let me leave you with one more truth from the word of God that you can take home today. There is one other place in the Bible that I can find where it talks about dealing with the crushing burdens of life. It comes from the life of David when he was betrayed by a very, very close friend. Our brothers in the Lord are supposed to stand with us, but when they don't, what do you do? Well, David actually tells us in Psalm 55, he says, cast your burden on the Lord and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved.
Love leads us to restore the brother overtaken with sin. Love leads us to live for the day of Christ's return. And love leads us to stand to comfort those crushed, crushed with a burden. But if you must stand alone, know that with Jesus Christ, you're never alone. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.